history, a garden of pure ideology, where each worker may bloom, secure from the pests of a contradictory force. Our communication of force is more powerful a weapon than any fleet or army on earth. We are one people, with one will, one resolve, one cause. Our enemies shall talk themselves to death, and we will bury them with their own confusion. We shall prevail. On January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. How many of you are actually old enough to remember or have actually seen that commercial? Yeah, that's right, baby. That was the commercial that introduced the Macintosh computer. Up until that point, computers were the size of mainframe, like the size of your house. Apple was introducing, for the very first time, a computer that could sit on your desk. And IBM was like the mega corporation that all computers were connected to. And so Apple hired a design firm that hired Ridley Scott, the director of Alien and Blade Runner and eventually Gladiator and a whole bunch of other films, to direct this wild, crazy, conceptual commercial, all based on George Orwell's book, 1984. Orwell wrote the book back in the late uh, 40s uh, about a coming time when everybody would be controlled by Big Brother, and so you got all those, like, you know, mindless, hairless, just sitting and watching this big screen, and Apple has the beautiful woman running up. She actually, on her uh, tank top, has a Macintosh computer screen printed on there. It's hard to see with the old grainy video, and, and she then destroys, right? Apple uh, wanted this commercial to be provocative. They wanted it to, like, make people feel a little bit uncomfortable with the status quo. Uh, they really wanted folks to uh, begin to question everything that they were uh, thinking when it came to computers. In fact, their slogan at this time was, think different. Now, this commercial almost never was shown. After it was finished at the cost of about a half a million dollars back in 1984, they showed it to the board of directors at Apple, and the board of directors hated it. They absolutely hated it. And so they told the advertising firm to take the three 30-second ads that they had purchased for the Super Bowl and sell them back. They didn't want them. Sell them back. So the ad agency sold, was able to sell one of the ads back, one 30-second slot, but they still had uh, two 30-second slots left that they said they couldn't sell back. Turns out they didn't actually ever try to sell them back because the ad was one minute long and they wanted the ad to be shown. So did Steve Jobs. So this ad gets shown, and it turns into uh, kind of a cultural phenomenon, the whole commercial itself. It was in the third quarter. Just after the ad was shown, it cut back to the game. John Madden talked about it on live TV to everybody out there. Uh, news networks picked it up. The commercial was never again shown on TV as an advertisement, and yet it was shown hundreds of thousands of times by news agencies all over the world just discussing this ad. It was controversial, kind of shook things up, made people feel a little bit uncomfortable, and that's actually what I think this morning might do for us. Uh, I'm not trying to be controversial this morning. In fact, I I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but I do think that some of what we're going to talk about might kind of feel like it's shaking things up, like uh, some of the things that you thought you knew are actually being questioned. I'm going to ask you to go on this journey with me today. Uh, we're going to kind of do two things. Uh, I've got a passage of scripture that I think is going to help us understand and set up uh, what we're going to be looking at to help us understand the gospel that Jesus was talking about. We're in our gospel series. And then I'm going to switch into something that's really different for me. It's a real risk for me, to be honest. Uh, I'm going to basically do like kind of a college lecture. 
um, where I'm going to talk about the four Protestant Gospels that I think uh, you and I have kind of grown up in, what we've heard and what we think. And I want to talk about what's good about them and actually what's not so good uh, about them. And um, I'm going to ask you to engage this morning. We're going to cover some ground, all right? And uh, I'm also going to tell you right off the bat, um, this is a stolen message, 1,000%. You want to hear the original version? You can uh, podcast Bridgetown Church out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, I heard this message a number of months ago when we were preparing this gospel series, and I said, I just, I got to do that message. And so uh, if you hate it, um, great. It's you hate John Mark, not me, okay? Uh, But (laughs) if you love it, uh, it's all mine, all right? So uh, no, uh, I wanted to share this because I think there's some real value in helping us make sure that we understand the gospel that is in scripture rather than simply some of the gospels that we've heard. Now, doesn't mean that what I'm going to share with you this morning, uh, that that these gospels, um, we're going to talk about the evangelical gospel, the reformed gospel, the prosperity gospel, and the social gospel. Doesn't mean that uh, all of them are necessarily wrong, but they're often missing some things or they lead to uh, um, some atrophy in certain areas that the gospel of the scriptures actually call us towards. So uh, I want to start simply by asking a question. What is salvation? What is salvation? If I was to ask this question and you were to talk about it, we'd probably get a number of different kind of explanations of what is salvation. What does it mean to be saved, right? How we define salvation will affect how we understand the gospel, okay? Uh, Does it mean that we get to go to heaven when we die? Is that what it means to be saved? Uh, Does it mean that we have our sins justified in a legal court of heaven? Or does it mean something else? How you understand salvation and the gospel will determine the trajectory of your life and your loves. I promise you. How you define salvation in the gospel will absolutely determine what you give your life to, what you pursue. So, much of what we call the gospel is not necessarily heretical or wrong, all right? It's just different from the gospel that Jesus preached. So last week, we actually talked a little bit about this. Uh, you remember I shared uh, when Jesus defined his gospel? He said, the gospel of God, Mark chapter 1, verse 14, is that the kingdom of God has come near, or the kingdom of God is here. That was Jesus' kind of summation of the good news. The kingdom of God has started. It's here. Not that it's coming, but it's here. Today I want to look at a passage that I think will help us kind of define and illustrate how Jesus talks about salvation. If you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This is a pretty familiar uh, story. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard this before. Uh, There are some things, though, that I uh, found in my study of this, the message that John Mark first gave, that really kind of opened up my eyes to a couple of things. So I want us to read it um, with some fresh eyes this morning. John, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 16. It's about the uh, rich young ruler. Just then... A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, love your neighbors yourself. Basically, he gives the Ten Commandments. So you got to follow the Ten Commandments. Verse 20, all these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? It's interesting. He knows that he's kept the morals, the morality code of the Ten Commandments, but he's like, it's got to be something more. And Jesus doesn't disagree that he's kept them, and he also agrees that there is something more than simply keeping the moral code. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it's hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, 
With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So what I want to do is I want to start back at the beginning of this story now that we've heard the whole thing. Verse 16. This is like every evangelist's dream, right? If you care about preaching the gospel, this is your ideal question. Someone literally comes up to you and says, what must I do to get eternal life? You're like, yes. Aunt Sally, like she came and asked me, the, now I get to tell her like the gospel, all right? The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to get eternal life? Now, if you grew up in churches similar to mine, good evangelical churches, you kind of have an idea of what you expect Jesus to say next, right? When the man says, what must I do to get eternal life? You kind of expect Jesus to say, do, do. You don't have to do anything. Doing stuff, that's, that's man's religion. That's a workspace righteousness. You don't have to do anything. I'm going to do it all for you on the cross. You just need to believe. But is that what Jesus says? No. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus is advocating for a workspace righteousness. But Jesus does start to mess with us a little bit. That almost sounds quasi-heretical, which is kind of funny to say that Jesus could be a heretic. He's not. But Jesus actually says, hey, uh, you should keep the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting because the guy says, I have. And Jesus doesn't, is like, nah, remember that one time? Jesus is like, yeah, okay. And the guy says, but what still do I need to do? There's got to be something else. It's almost like he knows instinctively. It's not just about being a good moral person, checking all the boxes. And Jesus agrees with him. He's like, yeah, yeah, no, it's not simply about the Ten Commandments. It's not less than morality but it has to be more than morality. So uh, Jesus then tells the guy something crazy. Go sell everything you have, everything. Give it to the poor, then come follow me. Now Jesus sounds like a cult leader, right? I mean, like if I told that to you, like, hey, yes, yes, you should sell everything, give it away, and then come and follow. Like Jesus is sounding a little strange. She's kind of messing with us. And our preconceived ideas, for those of us that grew up in the church, especially those of us that grew up in kind of evangelical, reformed churches. What is Jesus up to here? Uh, What is it that the man actually is wanting? Look at verse 16. What is the man actually wanting? What did he ask for? What do I need to do to get what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Now, Whenever you and I probably think of eternal life and the, the, word, uh, e- the words eternal life, we usually think of the quantity of life, right? Like a life that never ends. It's going to go on forever. Eternal. That's definitely true, okay? Don't freak out and be like, Torin said that maybe it's not eternal. It's not going to go on. No, no, we will be with God forever. But I don't think that that's actually the main thing that Jesus is caring about, or even the New Testament is caring about. It's not about the quantity of life. It's about the quality of life. In fact, there's a lot of uh, leading scholars that translate these words that, that we say, eternal life, as the life of the age to come. The life of the age to come. Because eternal life is probably referring more to the idea of the quality of life than the quantity of life. It has more to do with our life in Christ. And you're like, uh, really, dude? This sounds strange. Like, are you sure? Because it sounds like you're getting off of some weird stuff, T. All right, totally fine and fair. So let's go back to scriptures and let's see what Jesus actually said. In fact, uh, there's only one time that the words eternal life get defined for us in scripture, and it's Jesus, good person to listen to, uh, who's defining them. So if you want to flip over, it'll be up on the screen if you don't want to flip, because I'm going to say it quick. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus defines eternal life. Okay, Jesus says, now this is eternal life. So he's defining what eternal life is. And he says that they know you, the only true God, speaking to the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. When Jesus defines eternal life, he's talking about a relationship, a quality of life that we have with the Father and with the Son by believing in them. We begin to share in this relationship. 
Knowing the Father, knowing the Son, it's more about the type or quality of life more than the length or quantity of life. Now, when the man asks for that, he's not simply looking for a ticket to heaven, per se. He's asking, how do I get into this life of the age to come? Uh, Now, here in this one particular passage, we get some different terms. Uh, The man asks for uh, eternal life. How do I get eternal life? Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, which if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see the kingdom of God motif as kind of the main uh, kind of thrust that Jesus is talking about when he's talking about the gospel. And then you also have the disciples uh, in verse 25 mention this idea of what can we do to be saved? So you've got eternal life, kingdom of God, salvation, all talked about in this one passage. And there are three different terms that are talking about the same thing. They're used interchangeably here. Now, if you're a theology nerd, um, you're like, oh, this is helpful because uh, theology nerds know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the thrust, the main idea for Jesus is the kingdom of God. But when you come to the gospel of John, John He talks a little bit about the kingdom, but mostly what he's talking about is how one finds eternal life or begins to experience the life of the age to come. But then when you get to Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he hits on kingdom motifs here and there, but most of what he's talking about is how does one become saved? How do we have salvation? You see, there's three different terms that are all talking about the same thing. And what that helps us understand is that the summation of the gospel that Jesus gives in Mark chapter 1 It's what we talked about last week, right? The kingdom of God is here. We said that's that's Jesus' summation of the gospel. That the gospel, this idea of what we're supposed to be following and believing and living into can actually be contextualized. There's a little bit of room to breathe. Jesus' summation isn't the only way to say it. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. John, when he writes the gospel, he talks about eternal life, how to live in the, the life, find life in the age to come. Uh, Paul talks about how, how somebody gets saved. What does salvation actually look like? Three different ideas that are all talking about, or three different ways of describing the exact same idea. Tim Keller said, one gospel, many forms. There's breathing room. We're supposed to contextualize it. And that's really important. John did it to the exiles that he wrote to that were Jewish exiles. Paul does it when he writes to Jewish and Greek, uh, Jewish and Gentile believers that are living in Rome. And we're supposed to do it now today in Grand Rapids, 21st century. We have to do this. This is actually the good, important, beautiful work that every generation is called to. This begs the question though, what gospels have we grown up with? How has the gospel been contextualized, summarized, and does it match up with the scriptures? What things do we need to pay attention to? What adverse effects has it possibly caused in our life? So now we're going to move into uh, what's going to feel more like a college lecture. Okay? We're going to talk about the four Protestant gospels, the evangelical gospel, reform gospel, social gospel, and prosperity gospel. Now, let me start, though, before I go any further by telling you why I'm not doing this, okay? I'm not doing this simply for shock value, all right? I'm hoping to teach us a better, more holistic, and biblical gospel, all right? I'm not doing this to try to get anybody ticked off. Some of you might feel a little bit threatened by some of these things, some of the things that we're going to talk about. But my point isn't to make you angry at all. Uh, What I'm hoping to do is actually kind of shepherd this space together for us as a church. I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm hoping to simply acknowledge the strengths and weaknesses of some of our most popular gospels that we here in America have kind of latched onto. So uh, Jesus compared and contrasted within scripture. There's times where Jesus is like, you've heard it said X, I tell you Y. I'm not Jesus, all right? He was perfect and fallible. I am very imperfect and very fallible. But I'm going to do my best to try to explain to us where these things, these gospels, these summarizations that we have all, many of us, grown up with, where they're valuable, but where they might also need to be modified or engaged with in different ways. Maybe some things that it's kind of left out. 
So what I'm asking is that uh, each of us, all right, would look right now to try to find value from a rediscovery of Jesus' gospel. And I'm asking all of us to step into the space with a huge cup of humility. Hmm. Now, personally, I'm asking you to also offer me a huge glass of charity and grace as well. Um, this is a risk. Uh, I don't usually teach this way. And uh, I promise you I won't get everything perfectly right, but I do think that there's value in us taking this journey together. So here we go, the evangelical gospel. The evangelical gospel uh, will basically sound something like this. Um, You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. All right, uh, that's, that's kind of the popular version of how the evangelical gospel is summarized. Uh, the preaching of this gospel is usually followed by some sort of an invitation uh, to pray the sinner's prayer, maybe a request to come forward uh, to give your life to Jesus. All right, now, uh, this version of the gospel really rose to prominence after World War II, kind of in tandem with what uh, cultural analysts call mass culture. It's kind of this... Uh, um, martini of industrialization and suburbia that really kind of sprang up after World War II. And so we kind of started to get this mass culture from cities and suburbs as those began to kind of grow. And it was really an attempt to simplify the gospel into an appealing and accessible message for the masses. Let's say that again. It was an attempt to simplify the gospel into an appealing and accessible message for the masses. Now, let me give you a cynical interpretation of what that means, okay? The cynic will say, yes, this was done, right, making it appealing and simple for the masses as a way to win more converts. Pray the prayer, raise your hand, let me count you. And if you don't raise your hand, I'll still say I see that hand and we'll count it anyway. (laughs) A more gracious interpretation, and I would argue a more accurate interpretation, is that this came of age in a generation that far more than ours today took the call to preach the gospel far more seriously than we often do. The call to personal salvation is actually one of the things that this gospel does exceedingly well. I often take this for granted because I grew up in evangelicalism. And so the idea that there would be a moment in life where you would be called to make a decision and even have to maybe possibly even do something uncomfortable like stand or go forward or at least raise your hand was a way that I was committing myself to saying yes to Jesus. There's this idea of personal salvation, a personal call. Now, uh, for those of you that grew up in Reformed or Catholic or mainline traditions, you know that there is often no moment ever of commitment to apprenticeship under Jesus as Lord. You're supposed to grow up and you get baptized into the family when you're young or a baby and uh, you know the right things and so it's supposed to just kind of naturally happen. And there's no moment when you're asked to step into an apprenticeship. The evangelical gospel is certainly not heresy, but it has missed some really important pieces of the gospel that Jesus preached. Let me explain. It's not wrong, it's just not quite the full picture. Uh, The gospel that the Bible or that Jesus preached, all right, it's less about getting you into heaven and more about getting heaven into you. It's less about a transaction and more about a transformation. It's less about what God wants to do for us and more about what God wants to do in us. It's less about what happens when we die and more about what happens if we actually live. Scott McKnight, New Testament theologian, says this, most of evangelism today is obsessed with getting someone to make a decision. Jesus and the apostles, however, were obsessed with making disciples. One of the downfalls of the evangelical gospel is that it often calls for a decision 
to give your life to Christ and get a ticket to heaven. It's interested in a transaction when what the gospel of the New Testament is really calling us to is a gospel of transformation. Not saying that spending all of eternity with heaven isn't something that Jesus and the New Testament cares about. Very, very much so. But it's more concerned about the life in Christ, with Christ, than simply making a decision. Um, Discipleship in the evangelical gospel is often seen as an add-on to salvation. Like, oh, it's nice if you do it, but salvation is the most important thing. Rather than a uh, the rather than the pathway into salvation. Uh, the Babylon Bee. It's a <laughs> it's a satirical Christian satirical website. Uh, they had this article <laughs> a couple of years ago, which is amazing. Uh, Bible lacking sinner's prayer returned for full refund. It said this in the article. After purchasing a defective Bible that seemed to omit the sinner's prayer, local woman Gail Dunsby reportedly returned the incomplete book to her local Christian store for a full refund past Tuesday. It was really strange, Dunsby told reporters. I searched that Bible through and through and couldn't find anything about a magic prayer that could lead people that I could lead people to say in order to instantly get them into the kingdom and have them be forever more secure in their eternal salvation no matter what their life looks like afterward. Mm. When we ask the question, is so-and-so saved? And that's a great question to ask. What we usually mean by that is, does so-and-so meet the minimum requirements to get into heaven? Is that really the gospel, though? Is that really what salvation is about? The minimum requirements to get into heaven. Um, People who fly a lot, uh, if you fly a lot, you earn frequent flyer miles, and, and then you get, like, status, okay? If you fly a certain amount, you get gold status, and then I think it's, like, uh, platinum status, and then, like, diamond status, like, people that fly a ton. And those are the ones, they get those upgrades all the time, like, right? They're the ones that get the upgrade to, to first class, and they get to go into that secret door at the airport, right? The lounge, right? It's got glass, but it's, like, frosted glass. You have no idea what's actually back there. I've been in there once. It is pretty awesome. I'm just going to say all right, and, and you get that by how many miles you've accumulated over uh, the course of a year. I actually knew somebody that wanted to keep their status, so they bought a plane ticket that they didn't even really care about using simply because they needed the miles so they would have the status for next year. They didn't want to lose the status. Is that what salvation is? It's about just having just enough to keep the status. Or is it more like the New Testament metaphor of marriage? How do you think it would go down if I sat Brenda down and, and, I, and I looked her in the eyes and I said, baby, what's the minimum requirements you need from me to stay married? <laughs> how, how do you think that would go down? <laughs> uh, I can tell you, <laughs> not very well, all right? Uh, but not only that, uh, the truth is I'd be missing the entire point of marriage. Uh, marriage isn't about a legal contract. It's about a relational covenant. It's not about the minimum requirements. It's about a life that is shared and experienced together and grown together. Salvation's the same thing. It's not just about your eternal status. It's about the relational life of being in Christ, with Christ, so that you can become like Christ. All right, if I haven't made you mad yet, the Reformed Gospel the Reformed Gospel. At a popular level, it sounds like this. God is a perfectly just, holy God of both love and wrath, and you are morally guilty before him, and God's demands must be kept, and you cannot possibly do it, but Jesus did it for you on the cross. Sounds awesome. There's a lot of great stuff in there, just like the evangelical gospel. Sounded fantastic. And there is a lot of great stuff in it. This winds up, though, kind of equating the preaching of the gospel with a cluster of reformed doctrines, uh, three in particular, penal substitutionary atonement, imputed righteousness, and the main one is justification, okay? Justification, people often say justification just as if you never sinned. It's as if you were declared uh, um, sinless or righteous or guilt-free in a court of law, okay? 
Now, justification is most definitely a New Testament word and a New Testament doctrine, but the Reformed gospel makes this the heart of the gospel or says it is the gospel itself. Uh, I could actually quote uh, a few different uh, well-known pastors that said that very thing, that exact thing. Uh, And I didn't make up the term Reformed gospel. Uh, That's actually what a lot of um, Reformed churches will actually say, even some denominations talk about the Reformed gospel. And uh, there's a ton of good about the Reformed gospel, all right? Uh, The Reformed gospel is a really strong emphasis on the cross. Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, also had a huge emphasis on the cross. Uh, The cross for Paul stands in for the whole of the gospel, okay? It's kind of like saying uh, to somebody, somebody has 50 head of cattle. They don't mean the person literally has like 50 heads of, you know, cows, okay? What they mean is that the person has 50 whole cows, all right? When they use the word head, they're talking about the entire animal. When Paul uses the word cross, he's talking about the whole gospel. He's not just talking about Jesus' death. He's also talking about Jesus' burial and resurrection and Jesus' entire life. The Reformed gospel has a wonderful emphasis on the cross, and it's important. They also have uh, the Reformed, I say they, but quite honestly, if I'm being honest, uh, I'm probably, you're probably going to feel the harshest on the first two because they're my tribe. Hmm. I'm pretty Reformed in my theology. Uh, definitely grew up as an evangelical. I don't like using the term anymore, to be honest, because quite honestly, the word evangelical no longer means what it used to mean to most people. And evangelical is not actually a biblical word. It's not in the Bible. And so I have no problem not using it if a better word or a different word helps explain what it means to follow Jesus better in 2022. But one of the things that's good about the Reformed gospel is it has a sophisticated understanding of guilt, which our generation desperately needs to hear. And it offers a phenomenal way to deal with that guilt, which we also desperately need in our social media-driven cancel culture. It's also not scared to talk about God's wrath as an expression of his love. And it rightly understands God's wrath as an expression of love. God's wrath is written about all throughout Scripture. You can't read the Old Testament or the New Testament without hearing the Bible talk about God's wrath. But way too often we assume that that just means that God is angry rather than God's wrath is an actual expression of his love. You see, the fierce love of a parent that a parent has towards a wayward child, right? Emotionally offended, yet deeply invested in their good. The Reformed gospel helps us understand that God's wrath is actually an outpouring of God's love. And this is a much, much needed counterbalance to our liberal Western redefinition of God's love as this kind of lazy tolerance, right? That's fine with whatever, as long as people are basically nice. That's not at all how the scriptures, the gospel, talks about God's wrath and God's love. Um, Now, there's still some things that I think the Reformed gospel uh, misses. First of all, you're hard-pressed to actually find the word justification in Jesus' teaching. When Jesus talks about the gospel, he does mention justification one time. And if it was the heart, if it was actually the gospel, you'd expect Jesus to probably talk about it a little bit more. Paul talks about it in Romans. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians and a couple of other books. But most of his books, the majority of the letters that he wrote, he doesn't mention it. Not only that, but when you get to Peter's letters or John's letters, it's not mentioned there either. And you would assume that something that is so foundational or is the gospel would have been talked about uh, a lot more. Now, I'm not saying that justification isn't a powerful, necessary New Testament doctrine. It is. It absolutely is. I'm just simply saying that I think that there is more than simply being made legally righteous in a court of law. That is true, but there's more to the gospel than just that. Uh, Dallas Willard, um, or I'll get to that in a second. So, Jesus didn't also go around beating up people based on their self-effort, okay? When Jesus used the word good works, he literally thought they were good, (laughs) that we're supposed to actually do them. Not that, well, I just do it all for you and uh, you just need to believe the right things, okay? Dallas Willard said, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. That's a really important qualification, all right? 
Salvation is more than just a cluster of doctrines that one professes. It is discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus. The danger of the Reformed gospel, and this is where I think that it can begin to sabotage our discipleship, is because following Jesus is something that you have to do. Following Jesus isn't just something that you have to believe. Following Jesus is something you actually have to do. If you're constantly being told that it's not about what we do, but rather what God has done for us, you can end up with a very passive version of discipleship that has a high view of Christ, which is wonderful. We should have a high view of Christ, but a low view of apprenticeship to Jesus. Uh, Let me read this quote from John Mark Comer to you. He says, much has been said about the rise of consumer Christianity in the West. Much less has been said about its possible connection to the way the gospel has been preached, either as cheap grace, a just raise your hand for a free ticket to heaven, evangelical gospel, or as Jesus did it all, you don't have to do anything, reform gospel. Now, obviously, these are gross oversimplifications of both, but he says, sadly, this can produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than disciples of Jesus' way. Now, to be fair, My theology is quite reformed, and I grew up in in evangelical churches. And I would say most people would probably describe us as reformed and evangelical. I'm being hardest probably on these two because this is my people. This is my tribe. But I've also seen how way too often we can get it confused to think that it's really just about a transaction of how I get into heaven or certain theological doctrines that I just need to hold to rather than this life of apprenticeship to Jesus, that salvation is actually the path, or excuse me, discipleship is a path into salvation. Next, prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. Now, I'm going to start off by reading you something from Wikipedia. That's how Wikipedia defines it. Oh, you got the popular one. Drop that for a second. Prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the gospel of success or seed faith. It's a religious belief among some Protestant Christians that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Often connected to charismatic theology. Um, that's just a quote from Wikipedia. Is it? It's, I feel like it's okay to quote Wikipedia these days. It's like, I think that's all right. Uh, So let me give you the popular version of what you probably heard, what I think you've been reading up on the screen. The popular version is this. God loves you, is for you. You are his child. You are are royalty made in the image of God. And through his death and resurrection, he won the victory. And his victory is your inheritance. It's all awesome right there. Um, Your inheritance by God and through his death and resurrection, won the victory and the victory is your inheritance by faith over sickness, poverty, and failure. The best is yet to come and your breakthrough is on the way. You ever heard anything, something like that? Uh, There's a leading scholar um, at Duke Divinity School. Her name is Kate Bowler, a leading scholar on uh, kind of the prosperity gospel. She actually wrote a book called Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. And she divides the prosperity gospel kind of into two camps. Uh, One she calls hard prosperity and one she calls soft prosperity. Hard prosperity really uh, came of age back in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And really in many ways has kind of fallen out. Uh, These are folks like um, Benny Hinn. Uh, There's some still around today, Creflo Dollar. Uh, You've got like the whole Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, often connected with scandals. Uh, Some of it just literally had like flat out heretical, full on false teaching. Um, Cons. But we don't see that as much today. There there are still folks that do that. What we see today usually, though, is what she calls soft prosperity. It's not heretical, per se, okay? In fact, it's often kind of atheological. It's less theological than it really is therapeutic. It's often focused on relational flourishing, material success. Tons of celebrity pastors are connected to this soft prosperity gospel. 17% of Americans identify with the prosperity gospel. 17%, I didn't say 17% of Christians 17% of Americans identify with the prosperity gospel. In fact, half of churches, over 10,000 people, preach the prosperity gospel. Let me tell you what's good about the prosperity gospel, okay? Number one, an emphasis on a loving God that is for you. Friends, can I just say, 
We need to hear that. God is love. That's how he defined himself. He is for us. It's why he sent his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten. Second is that faith that God can actually do miracles. That's a wonderful thing the prosperity gospel folks often bring to us. It's a reminder that we don't live in a closed system. We live in an open universe that God is still active in and can step into it anytime that he wants, wishes, or desires and can do the miraculous, things that we cannot do on our own strength, with our own intelligence, with our own power. It also has a holistic view of the gospel and human flourishing. Prosperity churches have often been quick to start a wide array of social services. They've been at the forefront uh, on the alt, uh, multi-ethnic church from the very beginning, a wonderful thing. The gospel is supposed to engage with human flourishing, but just not always human flourishing in the way that it's described in the prosperity gospel. So let me tell you what's not so great. To begin with, it's just not the gospel that Jesus preached. Uh, it's actually literally almost the exact opposite of the life that Jesus led. It also sets people up for disillusionment. How can you say that the best is yet to come to Paul or the 12 disciples or so many other Christian martyrs throughout the centuries? You can't. Jesus lived a spirituality of descent. His life was not up and to the right. His life was all the way down to a crucified hell that he trusted that God would resurrect him from. The gospel, prosperity, the soft prosperity gospel, often baptizes the worst of American culture namely materialism, and in doing so leads people to greater bondage to material things rather than freedom. The social gospel or the liberation gospel. I think that secular society is actually beginning to grab hold of this gospel more and more here in West Michigan. Uh, This gospel sits inside an essentially soft Marxist view, a worldview that kind of sets all of human history as a struggle for power between oppressed and oppressor. Uh, views most relationships through the power uh, through power dynamics. So the popular version of this, listen to it, it's kind of long, but I think you might recognize some pieces of, of this gospel, the kind of popular way that it's talked about. Jesus was a political revolutionary who came to liberate the poor and marginalized from the hierarchy of oppression. He was killed as a threat to the status quo of empire, but he inaugurated a kingdom of peace and justice and equality. America is the latest iteration in a long line of empires. Jesus is on the march now, just as he was then, to stand up against those who abuse power and to liberate those on the margins, such as the poor, the immigrant, the refugee, the BIPOC community, the LGBTQ plus community, and many more. The church's role is essentially an activist role to move America towards a progressive and socialist political model. That's kind of a popular way of describing the social gospel. Let me tell you what's good about it, okay? There's a number of things. Uh, Number one, it actually uses the language of kingdom. (laughs) So far, we're one for four. And it's not just about trying to get us to heaven, but heaven coming to us. It also helps us understand that you can't separate the preaching of the gospel from the demonstration or work of the gospel. That the gospel is not supposed to just be something we talk about that lives in our minds, but that's actually supposed to be lived out, demonstrated, shown in how we interact and treat others. It has a sophisticated view of not only individual sin, but institutional sin, which for whatever reasons, we we evangelicals, we love talking about sin, but it's like bizarre that we seem to really struggle about getting our heads around the idea of institutional sin. It also has an emphasis on the dignity of all people, It has courage to call out racism, sexism, classism, even militarism within the church. It's also a great reminder of how Jesus radically subverted the world's models of power. But there's a number of problems with this understanding summation of the gospel. Uh, First and foremost is that if Jesus' message, if his gospel was primarily political, if he was really about taking out earthly empires, why in the world didn't he go to Rome? Why did Jesus stay in Israel? And not only why did, he stay in, why did he stay in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee, the backwoods, the backwaters. If Jesus was really about political activism and power, he absolutely would have gone to Rome and opposed Caesar. Why does Jesus approach to politics? And trust me, it was a massively politically loaded time. All right, 
this whole context was just ripe for an uprising. Why does his approach to politics, as scholars call it, uh, intentional indifference? Jesus was intentionally indifferent. Uh, in fact, he actually said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He tells his disciples that they should pay taxes, uh, not just to Caesar, but also at the temple. He tells his disciples to turn the other cheek. And if a Roman soldier asks you to carry their luggage for a mile, that you should actually go a second mile. Jesus refused to get involved in the political activism of his day, and he had ample opportunities. This is exactly what everybody wanted when he came into Jerusalem the week before he's to be crucified. They want him to become a political figure, to step up, to become a king, to start a revolution. And Jesus doesn't do it. And whatever Jesus was, he was simply not a progressive according to the current moral definition. When you look at Jesus' understanding of personhood and gender and sexuality and a host of other moral issues, Jesus is often at the opposite end of most of our modern-day arguments. One of the problems with the social gospel is its long-running compromise with theological liberalism. Uh, as a church goes liberal, it dies. Uh, this isn't just me saying this. Uh, you can look at it throughout history. Uh, there's plenty of folks that have talked about this. Uh, it's just the track record. This isn't some secret thing. And when I say liberal, I don't mean liberal as in politics, all right? I'm not saying that if uh, uh, you're a dem most of the folks at your church vote democratically, your church is going to die. Now, we're not talking about politics, liberal politics. What we're talking about is theological and moral liberal. When we become liberal in our theology and our morality, uh, the church dies. And I don't know how to say it, and I hope nobody's here from Genesis from a few years ago. That kind of happened to the church that originally inhabited this space. Now, why in the world did I talk about all of these? Because whatever gospel you grew up with, you're kind of doing one of two things right now. Either you're probably trying to be more and more entrenched into it, and you're trying to come up with counter-arguments to anything that I've said, or what most of us do is we wind up kind of having a pendulum swing from one side to the other. If you grew up in mainline liberal theology and you found Jesus, you're probably way over here in the Reformed or the Evangelical. Like, man, I, nobody ever told me what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus. And if you grew up in the Evangelical, you're like, oh, I'd like the power dynamics of this world have got to change. That's what Jesus was. Like, we often kind of swing between these. The goal of this series and the goal of this particular lecture today is not to entrench you or to get you to swing the pendulum, but to help us rediscover Jesus' gospel. Friends, every single generation has to do this beautiful, amazing, difficult work. We just do. And our children's generation is going to have to do it again. And our grandchildren's generation is going to have to do it again. We have to disentangle the biblical gospel from the trappings of our culture so that we don't uh, fall prey to the culture, but rather help to transform the culture. This is important work for us to do. We have to let the gospel recapture our hearts and recenter our lives. So my desire in all of this, why we've spent the last number of weeks engaging with this series is to help us, number one, learn to be with Jesus. This is what discipleship is all about. Be with Jesus. It's union with God. It's participating in the life that God has given to us, the love and relationship that the Trinity has for one another. We participate in that like a marriage. The second thing is so that we can become like Jesus. First, we have to be with Jesus then we have to become like Jesus. It's a growing our character and emotional maturity defined by love, defined by the fruit of the Spirit. And when we're with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, it allows us to do what Jesus did, to make your contribution to this world, to know your mission, and to have the courage to give your life to it. Friends, that's discipleship. I don't want a church full of converts. I want a church full of disciples. That's what I will go to the grave pushing for. We're growing as a church, okay? And that is fine. That's great. I can't stop it. I don't create it. 
That's just God's grace in what's happening here. But I promise you this, if 15 years from now, we have a large church and it's a bunch of consumers, fire me. And I'm not saying that with hyperbole. Fire me and close this place because that is not what Jesus desires of us. There's an old uh, West Texas football coach that a long time ago, somebody said, hey coach, how's the team looking? And he said, I don't know, I'll tell you in 15 to 20 years. Why? Because the coach didn't care about whether their season was 5-5, five and 0-10, five, oh or 10-0. and oh. What the coach cared about was raising up young men that were going to be great members of society. Friends, that's what we have to care about as a church. We're not just simply interested in how big we get or how many converts we have. We have to be about making disciples. That's the difference maker. That's all that matters. And being a disciple means that we're with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, doing what Jesus did. That's what we have to go for, go about. Now, it is not a quick process. We won't know how successful we are for another 15 to 20 years. But if 15 to 20 years we look back and we haven't made disciples, then we need to shut this thing down. Father God, let us not be people who just consume. Let us not be people who simply are looking for a ticket to heaven. Let us not be people who simply care about certain doctrines. Let us not be people who are interested in falling in line with the things that our culture says is cool. Let us not be people who give in to the desire to just hope that everything in my life is going to be nice and easy and I'm going to have wealth and health if I give my life to you. Let us be people who are all about discipleship, apprenticeship to who you are and what you do. And let us be transformed by your Holy Spirit so that we can be with you, be like you, and do what you did. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray all these things.